This episode of Radio Vet Nurse was proudly brought to you by Zilkeen. Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast with your host, Kat Robinson. You're listening to Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast for vet nurses where we tell our story. I'm your host, Kat Robinson. Vet nursing can be a tough gig, and yet we absolutely love it. So when it comes to vet nurses, who are we? How do we achieve greatness? How do we cope with the more challenging parts of our job? Radio Vet Nurse is our way to start a dialogue around these questions and to create a space where we can tell our story. Each episode, you'll hear from a different vet nurse about their personal experiences in life and in vet nursing. In this episode, I caught up with super motivated and wildlife mad veterinary technician, Gary. What started as a childhood love of catching snakes and reptiles has been refined into Gary's niche as a small animal anesthesia enthusiast with a special interest in wildlife and exotics. Gary's the nurse manager at the University of Queensland's Veterinary Medical Centre. In addition to leading the nursing team, he also lectures students within the vet science and vet tech degrees and teaches them on the floor at the hospital. As a speaker and presenter, Gary's a regular on the Australian and international conference circuits and he's also been published in his interest areas of nursing snake and reptile patients. As a technician and contributor to our industry, Gary lives in that extra 20 to 30% where above and beyond happens. His work ethic shows how going above and beyond can result in amazing opportunities and Gary definitely makes the most out of all of them. Hello, Gary. Welcome to Radio Vet Nurse. Hi, Kat. How are you? Very well, thank you. Um, I know you've listened to a couple of episodes of Radio Vet Nurse. Do you listen to any other podcasts? Um, I don't really, actually. I think I missed the 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 hype with them when they came out a few years ago, and probably just because of the fact that I moved closer to work, so I no longer had to travel very far. Um, yeah. But I, yeah, I've, I've, I think I'm probably wasting away with it a little bit because there's so much to learn. There's so many good podcasts out there, but I haven't really jumped on that bandwagon yet. Well, it's never too late. They're still pretty, pretty young. You know, podcasts are still pretty young in terms of, um, you know, how long they've been around and and what new ones are hitting the market. So yeah, definitely spread your little podcast wings. (laughs) Yeah, we'll have to. And where are you from and where do you currently live? Uh, Well, I'm currently out in the Lockyer Valley um, near Gatton University, which is where I work. Um, I Grew up in this area generally anyway, so I haven't really traveled far um, other than sort of living between Brisbane and here. That's about as far as I've moved for for living at home. Um, but yeah, so I'm a Southeast Queensland um, kid through and through really. Excellent. Were you working? I know where you work, so I this is kind of going to be a spoiler alert, but we'll get to that very soon. So were you working at the UQ hospital prior to being out at Gatton? Were you at St. Lucia? Oh, no. So, I wasn't uh, – I didn't actually start working for UQ until the vet school moved to Gatton. Oh, um, there we go. Okay, yeah. But yeah. I did – so, I obviously went to university at Gatton and did yeah. the vet tech degree. Um, the gr- degree, when I did it back then, you actually had to finish in St. Lucia. Um, okay, yeah. So, you would spend your, fly, your final uh, year at St. Lucia. So, I moved into Brisbane then. Yeah, um, yeah. And I sort of uh, – so, I grew up in Ipswich around Willowbank area and then I actually – uh, my parents moved us out uh, into the Lockyer Valley as well, and that's mm-hmm. hence why Gatton was a good choice for university for me. Um, mm-hmm. And then, yeah, moved into Brisbane for a little while and then came back. Um, 
out for the UQ job out at Catton. Were you living in the Lockyer Valley during the floods? Ah, uh, yes. Yes, I oh, was wow. actually. Yeah. I was uh, uh, high and dry, which was excellent. Um, mm. But I'm, oh, I was out at Lockyer Waters, which is a nice little country town. And it, we got flooded in. Um, mm-hmm. We were stuck there for about a week. Um, but yeah, we were obviously up on a hill, so we were fine. Um, but yeah, it was a, a bit of a bad time during that, that period. Must have been crazy seeing what the wall of water did through through the actual valley part and knowing people that were affected by it. So I was living in Brisbane at the time too and I was up high on a hill in West End as well. So we were sort of high and dry, but it was still really surreal seeing everything that had happened to everybody else. Yeah, it was a little bit crazy actually because uh, my wife was actually um, working in Toowoomba at that time and she was on the Toowoomba range um, stuck in traffic when the water started coming down the range in a big wall of water basically um and luckily i'd heard about some of the stuff going on i told her to turn around and come back and she got back just before it all sort of came flowing flowing through so it was just amazing like toowoomba is quite a large city up in a huge mountain um and for it to just flood like that as well it must have just been a crazy amount of water um and then yeah we i spent as soon as I could get out of uh, Lockyer Waters, when the roads opened again, we went around and we were just helping friends that had had their houses flooded through. Um, so it was just crazy the amount of damage it was able to do. Yeah, gosh, I can only imagine just from seeing what it was like in Brisbane, I can only imagine what it was like in the Lockyer Valley. So yeah, bad bad times. But um, yeah. it must be nice to be back there now and seeing everything rebuilt and um, you know, in in far better condition, I guess, than than those times. Yeah, and I guess it's it's a little bit um, ironic in the fact that now it's so dry, we're all asking for rain. Yeah, um, and um, but yeah, it's 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 a good community. Everyone sort of kicks back in and helps each other out. And um, being country towns, it's a bit smaller. Um, mm. A lot of people know each other, so it's quite nice out here. I quite like it. Yeah, that's really nice. I like that too. So we've kind of alluded to to this next question. So we'll fill in the gaps now. How did you get your foot in the door with vet nursing or being being a veterinary technician? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I guess that's a fun story. Like, I guess most of us probably all want to work with animals when we're kids. I, as a child, I wanted to be a vet, um, and I was. I'm obviously not the smartest kid in the world, so. <laughs> So I uh, looked at different op- options and the vet tech degree was close to home and it looked like it was a whole bunch of courses that I would do well in and wanted to do. Um, so I did the vet tech degree, um, obviously graduated from that one and uh, during my final year actually we have to do we have to do a whole lot of placement so we get sent out to different clinics that will take our um, final year vet tech students and um, I was working uh, in an exotics practice actually um, or just as part of placement and at the end of my two weeks they offered me a job there part-time mm-hmm. um, which I think is probably for a lot of people how they get their first job because um, they do a bit of volunteering or a bit of work experience and then uh, the the practice gets to see what they like, gets to know them a little bit and learn a bit about their work ethics um, mm. and then yeah I worked there part-time until I finished my degree and then I went into a, a larger small animal general practice um, which I absolutely loved and I still recommend every new nurse um, just 
slow down a little bit. Um, when you get that, when you get qualified and you're out in practice, you've got all this theory knowledge that we teach you over the years, mm-hmm. um, and you now have the opportunity when you've got your first job to put all that theory into practice and build your practical skills. And uh, that's the same as if you're learning on the job, like with some of the certificate courses as well. I think you've got to take advantage of that and you just have to put in some hard yards and, and, and work your butt off, so to speak, and learn a lot and put it all into practice. And, you'll, and I think it took me probably four years before I felt like I was a really competent um, vet nurse or vet tech. Mm-hmm. Um, and it always takes, like for me, I know when I start a new job, it takes me about a year to get comfortable and understand what how the new practice works and, and then um, obviously be comfortable enough to make any changes or, or add any advice. Um, so I think that first four years for me um, was amazing. I worked in a quite a busy practice. Uh, they also had a satellite um, smaller practice where I started taking on some more leadership um, responsibilities mm-hmm. and I just put all of that knowledge that I had into use and I built my practical skills and then that basically got me ready for a job um, back at UQ where I could go into a teaching facility. Yeah, it's nice to stay broad I think in those first years out as well um, because you don't really know if you do want to be niching down or in what area so I think being at a clinic like the one that you're at where you get to do lots of different things and uh, and also get more confident working with um, other nurses and even managing other nurses because it looks like you worked your way up to a head nurse position at that clinic, is that right? Yeah, pretty much. There wasn't really a... Uh structure like that at that point in time um, yep. but I, I certainly was uh, training some certificate nurses that were um, on traineeships um, yep. we were helping recruitment for other nurses and and training those as well so and we oh, I was doing a bunch of other I guess sort of head nurse responsibilities um, which was yep. pretty cool and I agree um, doing a being in a uh, general practice was one of the funnest times of my entire career because I could one day I'd be assisting to pull a calf in a carving um another day i'd be treating a snake and Mm. then you'd be doing small animal anesthesia it was just it was so good to be able to do a little bit of everything but that includes the clients as well um that's probably something i miss in my current job is that um that relationship you can build with your with your clients um and being out the front doing some reception all that sort of stuff um i think it's it's working in a in a Busy GP can can really make you a, a well-rounded vet nurse or vet tech. I agree, and it can be really rewarding. I know we, we often whinge about, um, you know, difficult clients, but, you know, 99% of the clients are amazing and, and it's one of the most re- rewarding aspects of being in a GP practice is having direct access to them and seeing them so happy when, you know, you discharge their pet to them and they're really relieved and they brought you a present even maybe. Like th- oh, yeah. those engagements are really nice and rewarding. So um, Absolutely, yeah, I completely agree. I think when you see those clients out in, out in the Woolworths or something like that and they'll yeah. – and they'll stop you and say hello and tell you how the dog's doing. I think um, that is really rewarding. Um, yeah. And you're right. There's only – we remember the bad clients, but um, they are few and far between compared to the good ones. Did you always know you were on track to be going back to UQ for a job? Was that always the plan? No, never. No. Um, yeah. I actually didn't really want to leave my GP job. Um, yeah. I got uh, – 
sort of like poached, but <laughs> um, my actual, the course coordinator at the time who was looking after the vet tech degree um, called me and she just said, there's a job going at EQ, you should apply. Um, yep. And she'd kept in touch with me anyway, because during the time while, while I was working in um, private practice, I was also going back to the university and doing some teaching. Um, so I'd kept in touch and, and uh, initially I said no. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and then I came around and I, and I applied and got the job. Um, I think for me, it was a hard decision. I'm very loyal to whatever, I guess, employer that, will look after me um, and yeah. my general practice really did they did look after me and, and one of the partners um, was definitely one of who I would consider one of the most inspirational vets just because they were very skilled but also had what I'd call the gift of the gab and mm. they could just walk into a consult and be 15 minutes with someone and they would not only learn everything about their dog, but they'd also learn who they were voting for, mm. <laughs> uh, what religion they were. And they, mm-hmm. um, so he was an, an amazing vet and um, I obviously got along very well with him and he helped develop me as well. So um, that was hard. That, that initial transition for me to make that decision to apply for another job was very difficult. Um, but I think it was probably the best thing for me because – I was at a point where if I wanted to develop further and learn more and also give back to the vet tech degree, which is something I always wanted to do, then going back to the university was probably the only uh, avenue for that. Mm, For sure, for sure. Because I think when you progress through the ranks in GP clinics, sometimes you just end up in a practice manager role when you keep sort of being promoted and then definitely you can stop um, having as much exposure to clinical nursing or hands-on practical sort of nursing you can just find yourself doing rosters and training and that sort of thing so it seems like a good sort of avenue those vets with the gift of the gab I think um, are just amazing too because they actually build the trust with the client that you need in order to be to be looking after their pet and in order to be looking after like a a non-verbal patient as well so by not only like finding out who they vote for and what football team they go for and what their kids names are but also like logging that like we try and put that I often see things like that in the medical notes Um, and it's so that the next time when they come back you know we can call the kids by their names or we can go oh how about you know the doggies had a win on the weekend and um, it actually means better care for the pet at the end of the day because the owners are like oh they remember us they you know we mean something to them so when you know when the vet suggests that we really do need to look into this more and do a proper workup I'm okay with that even though it's going to cost x amount of dollars so i think that gift of the gab is um is just so vital to to a holistic sort of approach and trust building relationship yeah definitely um i think it it's often quite hard to strengthen that sort of relationship and and to have that trust then like you've got clients for life then um and i think you're exactly right they will trust you more if 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 you do like we obviously, their animal is very important to us, um, but it can be difficult to show that and that's a yep. really good way of doing it. Yep, just remembering the little things. And I, I keep jumping ahead and so I should go back again and let you fill in the blanks of um, <laughs> where do you work at the moment, what's your role and what do you do from day to day? Yeah, so my role uh, at the moment is I'm actually nurse manager at uh, the University of Queensland Veterinary Teaching Hospital. Um, now... 
how do I describe that role? I'm not exactly sure. It's a bit, it's a little bit crazy, but it's it's a whole lot of fun. Um, we have a large um, teaching hospital, which is I guess separated into multiple parts. We've got the specialist um, equine hospital um, mm-hmm. down one end and then on the uh, other end we've got the specialist small animal hospital and general practice um, clinic as well. Uh, we also have a production animal service which is uh, not directly in the building because they're mostly ambulatory um, but I look after and manage all of the nurse and tech staff in the hospital. Um, it's also a very clinical role because as you mentioned um, it you can definitely get swamped in just management duties, yeah. um, but I love to keep my um, feet on the floor in in, um, in clinics mm-hmm. and make sure I'm keeping my skills up. Um, and I don't think I could do a job where I wasn't clinical. Um, mm. There's obviously I, a large amount of my job is doing rosters and organizing pays and recruitment and training, all that sort of stuff, but mm-hmm. um, my passion lies with really hands-on work um, with patients and obviously with the students and and my staff. How many nurses or techs are you managing in in that team? (laughs) Um, uh, That's a good uh, question. We probably have about 30 to 35, including our casuals. Um, And it's been growing pretty steadily over the last couple of years. Um, We've probably doubled the nursing team size in probably the last two or three years. Um, The clinic opened um, in 2010 and we moved the vet school from St. Lucia out in 2010. We opened the hospital, but Mm -hmm. the St. Lucia hospital stayed open until I believe 2016. Mm -hmm. And then when it shut down, uh, some of the staff came out to the hospital as well. And in that period of time, we've gone from a clinic that was sort of imagined to be just a busy GP clinic to a specialist referral with surgery, medicine, anesthesia, specialists, uh, DI, um, a whole bunch of, of different services that we offer. And it's grown just exponentially. Every year, it just seems to keep growing and we um, we put on staff to try and just to try and keep up with the workload. Um, so it's been a whole lot of fun, but it, it uh, we haven't really had a chance to stop and... and uh, um, look around yet, but yeah, um, you're just putting out fires of oh, we got a gap here. Oh, we need <laughs> yeah, more on the roster there, and we need a policy right. for this and a procedure for this. Is it a purpose-built facility, the new hospital? Yeah, so it was purpose-built. I guess that's the interesting part. It's a very, it's a new building. It's amazing and it's very mm-hmm. large, um, and it's got a whole heap of cool stuff in there. But it was sort of purpose-built for a busy general practice originally um so for where funnily enough for where we're finding the where we need more space is just office space for people to um sit and have a computer that's workstations Um, i keep telling them to go to the second story but we're not at that point just yet um but some amazing space and some amazing rooms and and we've obviously got all the fun uh um equipment to use on our patients so um it's all pretty exciting in there that's awesome. It's really hard navigating those growth spurts and like, oh, can we move yet? Because we're at the moment we are bursting at the seams in our building, but but we're not quite at building from scratch. But um, it's literally like we're just about to put on a third vet and I'm saying to Matt like, oh, we will need 
a third vet workstation. There will be three vets there and we're looking around for space and there's like a little room that did have a toilet in it, but we took the toilet out and put the Scanex <laughs> developer in it, um, like the, you know, the Scanex digital x-ray developer because in the room yep. next to that, um, which was a little bathroom, but we just left the basin in there and it's like the x-ray room. So I'm like, there is that space that used to be the toilet um, that does have a laptop there. But Matt's like, I am not sitting in there. That is not my office. I would <laughs> just perch at the lunch table. So it's funny where you're literally opening like every door and every cupboard and an animal or a human's kind of spilling out of it. And you're like, oh, sorry. <laughs> That's it. That's it. So it's always hard to find space when you're um, when you start just filling up the place with bodies and, and patients. So. Yeah. Because uh, I know that when Matt was out at Gatton, I think when they used to do pracs there for the vet school, uh, they were mainly just going to like a practice out there that um, was privately owned and they used to just go do practicing there and the main hospital was at St. Lucia. So it must be really nice to have it all together in the one place now. Definitely. Yeah. So um, when they moved the vet school out, they built a whole heap of different buildings out there for, for the vet school. So um, we're pretty lucky in that. We've got some really lovely facilities and um, one thing that I I actually don't know if any other vet school has is we've got a what we call the clinical study center um, so we have a massive teaching facility um, which is which also houses uh, adoption dogs um, so there's dogs and cats down there that um, get saved from pounds um, and wow. they come in and they they live their life out in the adoption center until they get adopted anyway um, and they've got these cool it's pretty amazing they got these outdoor runs with like uh, things, fun things for the dogs to do, and they've got a bunch of staff who, who are there, just to look after their mental, like the dogs' mental health and enrichment yep. and stuff like yep. that with their cats. And those animals are used to help uh, teach the students behaviour. Um, oh yeah, yeah. So the students will actually go in and and help learn a little bit about behaviour. They'll also learn some stuff about handling um, mm. because a lot of students that get into vet um, in their first and early years anyway um, some of them haven't even had uh, kept a dog or a cat before yeah. um, so it gives them a chance to go down and and yeah pat a dog and hold a dog and um, and walk them they can volunteer to come in they they also can volunteer to take in uh, go and sit into the uh, into the cat ward and study um, and they mm. can just sort of study and sit around with the cats that are out in the free range area um, so there's a whole lot of uh, very cool things and that that facility is then the other half is like this massive anesthesia surgery teaching uh, facility where um, they can learn a lot of their clinical skills as well um, so it's they've got a lot of cool facilities that again it's very it's very fun and um, uh, great for the students yeah that's awesome I'd love to see that new facility one one day we will go um on a holiday to Brisbane and you can go visit the facility so we can claim the trip as a tax write-off <laughs> I can give you a tour yeah that's it. <laughs> and you're doing heaps of different things within your role what is the best part of your job oh that's a hard one I think I think the best part of my job is probably just my like our team um so my team and and then obviously all the vets and and specialists that come along with it as well mm. um we we're a very big team um and we do some pretty amazing work and i think everyone's everyone gets along well we help each other um it's pretty fun just to head to work because you know it's going to be different than the day before um and really at any point during the day, we, they might be doing something amazing that I've never seen before, which mm. is which is pretty awesome. So to head into work and and see everyone doing some really good work, like 
really fun but also important work with um, treating animals is is probably the favourite part of my job. Yeah, and I guess with um, the academia side of things, your team would um, be be quite a cohesive sort of group of people because you do work together on these things being part of a university as well, which is nice because you do have these little side projects where someone's like, I'm doing a study on this. Can you come and help me with this? And so, um, yeah, I can imagine you would get to do lots of cool projects together. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's definitely lots of projects that come up um, that someone might be doing. Um, also, there's obviously a bunch of teaching. We've got, uh, I think it's 60 to 80 students in the hospital every day. Wow. Um, that's the final year vet students and the final year vet tech students. Yeah. Um, and there's obviously lecturing and, and pracs and tutorials that happen in the earlier years of the vet science and vet tech degree as well. Um, and then, yeah, there's lots of different, um, I guess, research projects that might be happening. Um, so they might be looking at patients with diabetes or something like that. Um, so there's always something pretty interesting and um, I guess everyone does their little bit of each. So everyone does a little bit of teaching, a little bit of clinics and, and mm. uh, a little bit of um, some study stuff and, and yeah, it's 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 a whole lot of fun. When you've got that many students around, are you able to just do um, the clinical work or are you doing and explaining as you go all the time? Pretty much doing and explaining all the time. Um, it's exhausting. Yeah, it's it's um, it's. I guess for me, I'm very used to it now. So yeah, uh, it can. Like I guess that's what do we call it? We call it brain drain. I guess when you're teaching, because um, yeah. you may not be doing very physical work, but you get to the end of the day, and you're like, whoa, I'm tired, and I just want to go home and have a sleep. Totally. Um, and. For, I think for new people getting into teaching, it can be a little bit intimidating, like even just putting a catheter in with seven people around you watching. Watching, um, like, I swear I did it the last <laughs> 10 times when you guys weren't here. That's right. So, um, I, I really enjoy it. I think when the hospital doesn't have students, it feels empty to me. Yeah. Um, and having them all around, they're all they're all pretty eager. Like, they're, they're mm. at the beginning of... of about to graduate for me and they're all they're they're all still very enthusiastic they want to learn they want to ask questions and um there are times where we just have to get it done so Mm. we're busy um and the the option is that we do it we do it quick we get it efficiently done and then we talk about what we did afterwards um but most of the time we have that liberty and I guess that's one of the best parts about working in a teaching facility is that um, we don't have to have 20 surgeries going every day. We can reduce that down to a handful and we can take our time with each one Um, and we can talk through it with the students and and let them um, learn and and at their own pace and and talk them through and have them ask questions and we can answer them. So um, Mm. it's – I guess you're replacing – busy lots of cases with uh with more more time focused on them on their growth and development um mm. as well and you it's sort of a give and take too of you know things that are draining about having students are also energy giving like i know when we're training a junior it can be really draining for the senior nurses because you're not only thinking about what you need to do and you're doing it but you're also telling someone what you're doing and you're trying to let them 
do little things here and there, but making sure that they're doing it properly and talking, talking, talking all day. Um, but then on the on the same token, like I was training um, a new staff member a couple of weeks ago and he just watched me do something that I was just doing on, you know, total autopilot, blah, 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 talking to a client. And then he pulled me aside when the client left and was like, Kat, you totally nailed that. Like that was <laughs> awesome. And it was just like really basic, but I was like, oh, thanks. And so you do kind of see they're like really pumped and really excited about something that you don't even think about doing anymore. So I think they do sort of refresh you as well. Oh, definitely. I think there's, I think we forget about what we actually do in our job as very mm. nurses and techs. It's just, there's so much of it we do do on autopilot. Mm. Um, and when you break it down, we're actually, and uh, you have to teach someone all those little things. It, it's surprising what what I guess the level of jobs that we're doing and, and the amount of work that we do each day. Yeah, and, and that's right, and how much knowledge and skills we've accumulated along the way. So Definitely. Then you're like, oh, my God, there's so much to teach these people. We'll get there. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and what's your routine when you wake up in the morning? How do you set yourself up for the day? Oh, uh, I am not a morning person. Um, so for me, I do my best to not snooze the alarm multiple times. Um, yeah. Get up, I have a shower and I go to work. <laughs> and that's about <laughs> it really. Um, yeah, for, as long as I can get to work on time, I'm happy. Um, so I usually start to like, I'll, I don't know, my alarm might go off at six I'll snooze it a few times and then I'll get up have a shower get in I usually forget breakfast um I don't normally feel hungry until probably 10 a.m or something like that I was gonna then say I'll... what time of day are you putting food into your body <laughs> then I'll snack as I walk around the hospital but um, nice. <laughs> which is probably bad for for everything but um yeah so mornings are, are not me I'm definitely a night owl um yeah I get home and Usually, as soon as the sun goes down, I start to feel more energized and then I might continue doing some form of work at home and then uh, go to bed at like 11.30 p.m. or midnight um, and then try and repeat the next day. Yeah, I'm like that too and I hate it. I just wish I was someone who's like, yeah, I get up and go for a run and do some yoga and have a juice and do some work. <laughs> but I'm like, no, I crawl out of bed when I have to and then it's I'm the same at night time, even if I'm feeling really exhausted in the afternoon and the sun goes down, I feel quite focused and energetic and I'm like, right, guys, what are we doing? Yeah, that's it. I often, like, uh, that's exactly the way I feel because I get home and I often, I don't know, I'll sit down just to relax and chill and then I might be almost falling asleep on the couch mm. and then the sun will go down and, <laughs> and then I get mm. up, I'll cook dinner, have dinner and then I'm just like fully awake and I won't go to bed for till the wee hours of the, either the morning or, or very late at night. And then Yeah, I don't think you get to choose it. Hey, I think it's just the body clock you're born with. Mm, that's right. I probably should have been an emergency tech um, yeah. and work nights. <laughs> yeah, and I could think I could do that too, except that they switch. Like then they've got to like change it up the next week, and I've got no idea how you do that. Um, yeah. Plus, like, yeah, I would just have to do the constant vampire hours, I think, and then not be part of the real world. That's it. That's it. No, it's not sounding so bad. No, just kidding. <laughs> and <laughs> what weekly or daily habit makes your life better? I don't know if I am a creature of habit. I probably am. Um, there's some weird ones probably. I guess I guess for me, just getting home and I've got lots of animals. So I see my dogs, my cats, yeah. um, talk to them as if they're humans. Um, mm -hmm. And that obviously is always going to make my life better. I think yeah. I think that's why we have pets. They're, they're 
there as sort of substitute humans um, that yeah. are forgiving no matter what you do to them. So That's they're, right. they're, they're pretty cool to have in my life. Um, I do have a really weird habit of, of uh, checking on a specific plant that I have, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is, which probably, I guess it gives you an insight to my personality. I, I, I was over in, um, I was presenting at a conference in New Zealand and I took advantage of, of the trip over to New Zealand to go and have a look around because I'd never been there before. And um, part of my trip, I ended up at the Botanical Gardens in uh, Auckland. And they have a, a type of aloe vera plant there called a spiral aloe vera. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. Um, but it's a really weird looking plant and it's, it gets quite big and it sort of spirals and it's, it's really beautiful. And I got back from New Zealand and I spent my whole time trying to find this plant. Um, and I finally got one and I, I bought it from um, a nursery near Brisbane and they brought out this sad looking little plant that looked really unhappy and looked like it was going to die. And they told me that this particular plant does not appreciate Queensland weather um, oh. and that I'd never be able to grow it. <laughs> and automatically I'm a very competitive person. Um, yeah. So in my brain I said, I'm going to grow this thing <laughs> and I'm going to show them that I can do it. Um, and so I got this random, this spiral aloe vera plant and it's a little, little tiny thing and I did some research. They're from the alpine regions in uh, South Africa. So I, yeah. I learned a bit about it and then I set it up and it's been growing beautifully. Um but it is it is almost like a an actual animal. You need to check it daily, yeah, and uh, see if it needs water and all these things. And um, I sent them a photo of it recently, and I said it's growing well, <laughs> just to rub it in a little bit. But um, but I, I am weirdly attached to that plant. I don't want it to ever die. <laughs> and it's like a mark of your like success. If you're worried about anything in life, you just walk over to that plant and be like, "Winning! I am still yeah, winning." Yeah. And I actually I got a few more from them because I asked them to order me some in and just to really rub it in. I'll have <laughs> another they're twenty. All doing, they're all doing very well, so I'm very happy. <laughs> <laughs> just got an entire garden of them. <laughs> yeah, that's it. But um, <sighs> supposedly they they told me that they've been uh, in some group of of like succulent keepers for the last 50 years and no one has managed to grow them in Queensland. Oh, really? So, uh, I'll get them up to maturity anyway. So I am adamant that I'm going to prove that wrong and potentially be the first. Oh, I bet you my husband's ears will prick up when he listens to this episode too. And he'll, I, I bet you he's already Googled it by the time he's heard this. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> oh, he's a bit the same with that. And do you have any other strange habits or superstitions? Oh, I don't think so. I'm definitely not very superstitious. Um, I'm, I'm the one you'll catch walking around the clinic going, geez, it's quiet. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I just, I don't believe it's going to be busy. It's going to be busy. Um, if, if I had the power of making it busier by saying quiet, then I'd like that power because yeah. <laughs> being a quiet day is, is probably the hardest day at work. I think when boring. you sit there and it's, yeah, it's boring and, and you want to see cool stuff and do cool um, technical work. So yeah. I quite like busy. So Yeah. Good. Do people slap you when you say it? <laughs> they usually give me the same look <laughs> yeah. but, um, of how dare you, but, um, but uh, it doesn't change anything in the end. 
Yeah, yeah, that's it. And um, I think probably like sometimes the quiet days are good for catching up on work and stuff. But I think really, really, even if you do want to slap the person that's saying, gee, it's quiet because you've got all this admin work to do, really you would be much happier to have to get up and help out with this cool case that's come in. You know that like secretly. Yeah, no, anything to get away from the computer is a good thing really. I've been looking at your um, CV and it looks like that – being part of a uni means you do have to produce a lot of paperwork. Like I guess universities need for funding and that sort of thing. They need people in their jobs and their roles to talk about, um, you know, desired outcomes and, you know, goals and what they're achieving and that sort of thing. Is it is it a paperwork heavy role or you pretty that it's pretty manageable? Um I think you're right. It probably is a little for for someone in my position it's probably a little bit more um I guess paperwork driven um, yeah. for a tech or a nurse uh, that's working clinically only, um, so they don't have to worry about teaching or anything like that. They can just sort of come in and and do their job and and go home, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, for me, most of my I guess management of a big hospital takes a lot of paperwork anyway. There's a lot of standard operating procedures. Totally. And, and it's it's. Uh, a, University, so we've got to do a lot of risk assessments and things like that. Yeah. Um, and then there's teaching. I do I do quite a bit of um, didactic teaching, so I present a lot of lectures and to help yep. out with prax and and do a lot of tutorials. So that takes a bit of time. Um, but yeah, I guess I think for the, for some of the academics, definitely they've got to they need to show that they're doing. Yeah, they've got to try and show. Um, what work they're doing clinically and then yeah. what work they're doing teaching. They've got a course coordinate um, and they obviously have to publish and, um, yeah. and do other publications. Um, for me, publishing is is just an added bonus. If someone, if I've got an opportunity um, to try and write a chapter or, or write an article, then um, I'll make time and just try and get it done because it's just another cool thing that I can put my name down for. Um, but yeah, it's not, it's not too bad. Um, yeah. But I imagine it probably is a bit more paper heavy than a lot of other jobs. Yeah, and I guess in private practice you get to be a bit lazy. Like you don't have to work towards like a budget of this is what we've got towards training and towards wages and this is how oh, we're yeah. meeting this budget. You just get to be like <laughs> me and be going, mm, that feels about right. I think we're not going to go bankrupt. <laughs> oh, definitely. The the budget is, is always fun um, and uh, even when – you want to put it on a, uh, a new person or something like that. You've got to show, um, have it. you budgeted for it? What's yeah. the reasoning? All that sort of stuff is yeah. always, yeah, a bit fun. But it's not a bad skill to have, though. It's um, it's all very, um, you know, you, you can adapt that skill to to lots of different things that you need to do. I guess even clinically and looking at a lot of your publications and the didactic teaching that you're doing. It's there's an obvious trend here of wildlife and reptiles and and birds and that sort of thing so did you did you get a love of that side of nursing from your first job or from prior to that oh prior to that definitely um i uh, was a very weird child and um for me uh reptiles were definitely a big um focus for me as a small child i used to run around trying to catch snakes and uh, and lizards and I'd bring them home and put them in my bedroom and stuff like that and yeah. let them free range and freak my mum out. Um, <laughs> so exotic pets have just always been a really big interest of mine. I think they're, um, they're pretty cool. I probably drove my mum a little bit insane, I think, because she 
moved me out to the country and I sort of probably just disappeared every day looking for yeah. stuff and yeah. he had a, a bit of a phobia of snakes <laughs> um, and the, there was multiple times where I tried to catch brown snakes and things and, oh, and um, would not um, probably yeah not make her super happy um, yeah. but I definitely know of a couple of times where I'd find a big bearded dragon on the side of the road and I'd bring it and just release it in my room and <laughs> and she'd walk in and Oh, and it'd run out from under the bed and hiss at her or something like that. So, yeah. <laughs> um, the the reptiles have always been – she never let me keep any. Yeah. <laughs> I'd keep them until she found out and then I'd have to release them. But, yeah, um, I uh, yeah, I had definitely had a lot of birds. Um, I had a lot of small mammals like guinea pigs and stuff. Um, yeah. I would have loved to have kept rabbits, but we're in Queensland, so we yeah. weren't able to. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think – the the weird unusual pets were definitely a big one for me. We my parents used to go on holidays a lot. Um for school holidays we'd take us to the beach and stuff like that. So we weren't really ever able to get a dog. Um yeah. just due to the time and who's gonna look after it when we're away and all that sort of stuff. Um so I I didn't get my first pet dog until I was a bit older. Um but I definitely yeah, had lots of birds and parrots. Like I used to have a pet cockatoo that used to live in my room <laughs> and oh. chew up everything. But um, so, yeah, the the weird and unusual pets were definitely a passion of mine right from a young age. Yeah. These stories I hear make me a little bit nervous about um, having a son who's quite young at the moment. But like I was, I didn't even like holding snails or slugs or anything when I was little, but I hear stories like yours and like Matt who, um, my husband Matt who, caught a mouse or I don't know if he caught it or he bought it but anyway of course his mum didn't want him to keep a mouse in his room so he joined up a series of um polypipe tunnels and put ran them along like his bookshelves and put books and stuff in front of them and just for ages this mouse lived in his room <laughs> uh, just running pipe. behind the books and being pulled out at night and played with and put back in and fed and I think he had it for like a long time until I think he told her like only a few years ago like did you know I kept a mouse in that room for like x number of years or months and she was like what so um and my brothers I remember used to um take frogs in their pockets nearly everywhere we went you know a frog would sort of leap out and I'd be like ah so yeah I'm a little bit concerned I hope yeah. I hope he's not interested in brown snakes that's that's my main thing <laughs> I think you'll be in trouble um, yeah the, the problem is you're up north so it might not be brown snakes it might be taipans or yeah something like we gosh we've seen I've seen one taipan bitten dog and gee he crashed quickly he you know the owner presented him and, and had identified that it was a taipan um, but the dog walked in and within like I don't know like couple of minutes was just crashing so quickly and I think we, we there was the option of giving um the, the anti-venom but it was just happening so quickly I think um and the yeah. owner was cost constrained and we we all sort of knew that it was a really um poor prognosis but I've just never seen a crash so fast yeah yeah no because everything down here gets blamed on taipans but um the odds of a taipan being in this area are pretty slim so yeah <laughs> so that or a king brown um but eastern browns are pretty much the worst we're going to get um for us but yeah 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 there's a lot of them up here it definitely freaks me out <laughs> um <laughs> now can you think of a purchase made by you or your employer that's positively impacted your vet nurse life in recent memory that is a good question. Um, oh, it's interesting because I work at the uni. We have so many cool 
instruments and equipment um, that it's, I guess it's hard to nominate just one. Um, but I will tell you one actually that pops into my mind talking about all these venomous snakes. I, um, one of my passions is also treating venomous snakes um, and we're probably the only vet in the area actually that will. Um, they, I'm not surprised to do that. Because <laughs> they don't have a crazy me running around. But um, <laughs> we, a client actually caught this Eastern Brown that was in their aviary and it was a big bugger and they told me it was big when, when they called and I didn't really believe them at the time. Um, but they'd sort of done a degloving injury on this, this snake's neck oh. and I get this Eastern Brown out and it was big. It was uh, a meter eighty-three centimeters long, so taller than, like, longer than I am tall. Um, and it was, it was well fed. It was a big boy, and the the most hilarious thing about it is that he now, like, he was. I think the reason he got so big <laughs> is he was very confident, and he knew that if he came at you, yeah. Um, you would leave him alone. Yeah. Um, so most of the Eastern Browns I see are probably three foot long um, and they're they're scared. Like most yeah. snakes are scared of you anyway and they'll, yeah. they'll want to run the other way. For this boy, he just didn't – he didn't get that. He he knew that if he didn't back up and he mm-hmm. actually just came straight at you, he, he would get the, um, get his way. And uh, so recently I actually purchased some decent handling gear, which was mm-hmm. probably my – best purchase in recent history to save my life. <laughs> who taught you how to use it? Uh, so I did some uh, training with uh, Gecko's Wildlife actually. Um, yeah. I like Most people learn this sort of stuff just being crazy and <laughs> going and handling them. Um, I had done a little bit actually because I'm, I'm, like, I've been chasing around looking for these things since a kid. Um, I'd um, relocated a few from my yard um, growing up just from like if they're going to get too close to the house or something like that, I'd just take them uh, down the bush a couple of kilometers away and release them. Um, mm. So I I sort of, I think once you've been around snakes a little bit, you start to learn their behaviors and how they're going to work. Um, they don't, they're not aggressive animals. They mm. just, if you get them cornered though, yeah. um, then they, they will definitely try and tell you to go away. Yeah. And so that, in itself, I learn obviously learning with pythons. Uh, pythons show similar behavior. They just have um, a little bit of different muscle, uh, musculoskeletal system, um, yeah. so um, which is good for venomous snakes because it makes it so they can't sort of just turn around and, and come up and bite you like a python could. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, and then I went and did some training, um, uh, formal training um, to handle these guys, and that was mostly for uni actually because mm-hmm. I wanted to be able to treat them. And part of treating uh, venomous snakes at, at UQ was that I'd have to um, get some training, and we'd have to have the riding the right equipment and the right enclosures, that sort of stuff. And we'd have to show that we're managing the risk. Um, so we went through that process with our um, occupational health and safety team. And they would and have loved they, that. Yeah. And then they allowed, <laughs> allowed it to do it. So, um, That's so like yeah, it's OHS team's worst nightmare. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's, it's interesting though, because I tried to do it with bats as well. And yeah. everyone says no to bats because yeah. of lysivirus and then there's obviously Hendra out there as well. And, yeah. And it's just a straight up no for bats and I'm like, oh, come on. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's a, they're fun. Like we do, 
we do it differently. Like you, you've probably seen lots of videos like Steve Owen handling snakes, that sort of stuff. And yeah. we do it very safely in comparison. Um, yeah. There's very little hands-on and, and when we when we do, we'll get them into uh, restraint tubes and then we anesthetize them and then go from there. Yeah. Um, so we do do it very safely. Um, yeah. It takes a bit longer once again. Um but I'm not too worried. Like if it's going to mean that you take an extra half an hour to look at a um, a venomous snake and not get bitten, then I'll I'll take that any day. Yeah, definitely. I think you 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 really do need that um, love of and um, curiosity about these um, particular you know the more dangerous animals and reptiles to be silly enough to treat them because we're one of the only vets that will deal with bats up here because my husband for his science honors um, thesis was researching echolocation in bats so he loves bats so (laughs) when they ring and they're like oh we've got a bat that needs to be euthanized because it's been chewed by a dog and um, the, the lady in the government role is pregnant and she can't touch the bat. We've called 10 other bats, in, uh, 10 other practices in far north Queensland. They've all said, no, will you guys deal with the bat? And Matt's like, yeah, bring the bat here. Um, <laughs> so it's only that there happens to be a mad person like you or Matt that has a love of these animals that you're like, yeah, of course we want to deal with that. Oh, definitely. Someone's got to do it. Yeah. Um, and they deserve treatment and they deserve pain relief and all that sort of stuff. Oh, so, definitely, um, definitely. I'm I'm more than happy to put my life at a little bit of risk for that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And you're reminding me of my brother a little bit too because he did snake handling training in his first job, which was um, at the zoo in Canberra. And then he moved to Melbourne and worked for the RSPCA Burwood looking after puppies for about 10 or 15 years. And then he was a vet nurse at the Lortsmith in Melbourne, um, which which is a good kind of segue for me to address like the elephant in the room, which is like you're a male in a female dominated position. (laughs) Like most vet techs and vet nurses are female. And my brother used to hate it. He used to hate that people be like, you know, asking him sort of what's it like or like, you know, playing into the the kind of stereotype of being, you know, the sole male in a massively female workplace. Like, do you notice that you're you're mainly surrounded by by women in these jobs? Yeah, I think you have to notice really it's it's um it's been like that right from day dot at university, really. I was one of two in my class. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, I guess it's one of the rare jobs where there are more women, isn't it? And, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's different. It's cool. I think, I think the veterinary profession could definitely benefit from having more male nurses and techs. Definitely. Um, because it just adds that sort of uh, – diversity to the teams again mm. um which is it's rare that you have to talk about diversity with ma- like having <laughs> more men <laughs> um, but uh more but yeah no i think men. yeah that's right <laughs> so i think it's pretty cool um i work with some really amazing women in their careers yeah. um and i think that's that's pretty awesome mm. um and i guess you, you you're sort of shielded from some of the things like two of my direct supervisors are women um yeah. and yeah you like oh, i guess it's just one of those things you can't really help it's had a the veterinary profession has had a huge change even in in the veterinary science degree that it's mostly women now yeah matt um, was definitely in the minority <laughs> Yeah, definitely. So, so I don't. Oh, I've never really noticed. Um, I really enjoy um, yeah. working with dedicated nurses and techs, and yeah. and um, I've got only one other male 
um, nurse on my team, actually. Um, And, yeah, it's a whole lot of fun, but it's not a bad thing. It's crazy. I wish there was more balance and more diversity, as you say. We just brought on a a CCR and we had one male applicant and he was great and we were like, yes, and this will be so good because it just can balance things out a little bit because Matt's the only male in a team of 10 of us. Well, now now we've got two males and eight female. But um, Matt and I often talk about whether – the the whether it's any coincidence that there's sort of been a downward trend I guess in the salaries that vets are paid and the conditions that vets are um, working for and same with veterinary nurses um, with a a trend as well of it becoming a more female dominated industry because we know that women are less likely to have those conversations like to say you know either sit down at their annual or biannual review or say I want to have a review for people that don't have those meetings and then sit down and say, this is what I'm bringing to the table. This is what you're currently paying me. I think you need to be paying me this. Like women are just far less confrontational and I guess lack that confidence sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really hard discussion to have, isn't it? Um, I certainly um, had that conversation in my first job and I, I, I think you're right. It, It can be a really, difficult thing to do to sit your boss down and say, I want to review and this is what I want to talk about. I think you're right about the fact that the way to do it is to justify your worth um, yeah. in a job. Um, I guess for me, that's another positive for working uh, for a bigger organization is yeah. that there isn't, you don't have to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. For working where I am now, is you basically, you're given a level depending on your qualifications mm. um so if that role so for a veterinary nurse role it's might be like for instance it's a level four um and each year that is, we have we don't really have a review process we have what we call a recognition and development process mm-hmm. um so we uh look at we set goals for each year and we obviously recognize um what we've done in the previous year and then we look at different ways that we could that this person wants to um, develop in their role. Yeah. Uh, and that process also aligns with going up an increment, what we call an increment within your level. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I, I like to con- consider that a bit of like a loyalty bonus that yeah. um, each year that you stay with us and you're developing nice, um, you'll then get a pay increment. Um, yeah. And that goes for four or so years and then you'll sort of sit at the top of your level. So that's where the structure sort of gets very... Like I guess it's a specific structure. So if you want to go to the next level, you have to basically apply for a job that's at the next next level. Yeah. Um, but that does remove away. It removes all of that sort of stuff. Um, that if you're doing that job, then you're paid this amount. Um, mm. And there's no one who can sort of you can't really negotiate that. Um, yeah, you, you don't get so those discrepancies be... between men and women doing the same job or anything like that's that. That's right. Um, yeah. And and being a bigger organization. Um, we like they my staff and are all paid quite well compared mm. um, to I guess a lot of private practices just because they're doing teaching they're doing yeah. um, they're helping with all that sort of stuff and and um, and there's other sources of revenue for the union that's right yeah that's right so so it's not a it's not a huge thing for us out here but I can definitely see how that could be a concern out in, in out in um, private practice because you're right it's it, those conversations are really hard mm. and I think generally vets and nurses aren't paid very well um, yeah. for the level of work and if you think about 
all the stuff we do and the importance of what we do, I think they, and it's the same with human nursing, that everyone, like, they should be paid better. Yeah. Um, if you, yeah, it's about nurses putting in art lines and monitoring really critical patients and on ventilators and stuff, like, mm. they're, they're worth their weight in gold. Definitely. Um, and the cost of so. retraining people, if you have a nurse move on and you've got to train somebody else up and the cost to star, uh, sorry, to clients who at the back of their mind are watching your staff turn over and turn over going, hmm, is this really a great place to be coming? <laughs> and it. I mean, it's, it's, it's wrong to make that mass for me to make a mass generalization. And I'm definitely not. I, I think that there are some bosses who are great and who are very progressive, but we just can't deny that there are some really traditionally held views that can be difficult to um, break through of, you know, a, a, a man, um, a man sitting down and, and saying, this is what I'm worth. And being even a little bit pushy or assertive or whatever um, that might be, an admirable trait for a man, but a woman who sits down and, and, you know, is, is um, exhibiting the same behavior might be like too big for her boots or, you know, a troublemaker or not, not acting in the, in the sort of demure way that a, a woman should. And it's, it's not, it's definitely not everyone. There are really great bosses out there, but you know, at the back of some people's minds, you know, you can have a man and a woman act the same way and be like, gosh, that's not very ladylike. And, but gee, isn't he, you know, great. So I think, um, I think it, it, it must have an impact and, um, it, it's super important to be able to sit down with your boss and say, um, these are the things I want to achieve in a year. Could we have a chat about my pay rate if I'm doing that? Some of them include, you know, helping to upskill the team and train new people. I also want to do this course, blah, blah, blah. So you can sort of bring that to the table, even if it's not something that's regularly done within your business. Oh, definitely. I think, I think that'd be my advice to any employer out there is that, um, they shouldn't really have to come to you to have no. that conversation. Like that should be something you should be meeting with them at least yearly um, yeah. to discuss their how they're going and, and how they're growing in their position because when you look at the clinics that do really well, um, they have highly skilled, highly utilized nurses yeah. um, because the money making is, is professional time and mm -hmm. that's where you can make your vets make a lot of money because totally. – the, the clients want to see them. They want to be consulted. They want to be diagnosed. They want to have surgery, all the things that are veterinary procedures. Yeah. Um, and in the background, you have amazing vet nurses and techs doing all – buzzing around, doing all mm. these other little jobs mm. that help um, that. So, in theory, I would hope that most clinics should – would realize that and, and have those conversations and they should be – yeah. Like, I think – the only the only other thing there is that I think there has been a bit of a move. Um, I don't even know how to say it. Some generational changes where I think some people sort of expect that I've been in this job for a year. Mm. I should be now here, mm. um, and I think you you definitely have to um, like it's yeah you have to be you have to be doing more and you have to take on responsibility as you yeah. mentioned um, and you. And sometimes, yes, um, you may have to tell your employee that I'm actually doing all this sort of stuff and yeah. hopefully that'll be a nice conversation that you can have at any day, really. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I think the reason I'm in a position I'm in is because of the extra 20%, 50% that you do on top of your job. Mm. Um, a, a few people have told me over my career that you get paid for 100% of your job. Um, everything extra is 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 
so if you <laughs> it was some people have been hard they're like if you want reward you've got to do more than 100% of your job because you you're paid for that yeah. um but that's and i i have lived by that i probably live in that extra 20 30% because that's what i try to do every day i think if um if you want to really develop and grow and get opportunities opportunities come yeah. once you're doing more than what you're paid to do yeah. and if you show initiative and you take on that little extra bit of responsibility, you may not even ever have to have that conversation because someone will come to you and mm. say, I see that you're doing this and mm-hmm. you're doing a really good job. I want to give you a new position or mm. I want to offer you some extra study allowance so you can go and go to a conference or something like that. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, they are, they're hard conversations to have and, and um, I would hope most employers realize that and and would actually approach their employees. It's yeah, and it's not hard. Like we just have a standard template that we give people once every six months and say, fill this out and bring it back and we sit down. They're mostly questions about how do you want to be extended and what study would you do if you were to do extra CPD or what do you love and what do you hate about what you're currently doing and you know, can we steer you in a direction of what you love? But I'm glad you mentioned the working in the extra sort of twenty percent plus because I think because of the same issue that I was talking about of poor conditions or people being taken advantage of, I think that there's a lot of content out there at the moment in the public domain and in social media warning people don't get, you know, sucked into doing more than you should and staying extra time here and there. And I definitely agree you shouldn't. Um, But I still think that you do need to know that all of the extra CPD or the coursework or the extra research that should be done in your own time if you do really want to be uh, be noticed by someone and have them say, oh, you, you seem to be coming to work every day armed with all this extra information or when we do this interesting surgery on the weekend, you just want to stay just to watch and ask questions. And, and that is not you getting taken advantage of. It's just you saying, I want to be at the top of my game and I want to be given this opportunity like to go to this conference or to be asked to present or whatever it is. Yeah, definitely. Um, like I think in the 100% of our job, we actually do crazy amount of work and, and definitely deserves lots and lots of reward um, and and deserves probably better pay than what we're all getting as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that, that extra bit that you go above and beyond is what opens doors totally um, and what gives opportunities and and there's nothing there's also nothing wrong that if if you're in a position in your career where you want to come to work do a really good job and go home that's fine um, too absolutely fine yeah Uh, for someone with a bunch of drive who who might want to go and do extra things or learn more and they want a, a little bit more assistance to do stuff then um then that's the avenue i would take if i was them yeah, well said. And it can change for you depending if you've got young kids or whatever's oh, going on in your life. So that's really well said. Um, just before we stop for a really quick break, can you tell me about a time when you were able to turn defeat into victory? Could be in a personal or professional capacity. Well, this, um, that is a big question. Um, <laughs> I think there's, I think we have those little battles every day, really. Yeah. Um, and Ooh, an exact example I'm not too sure I think for me some of these some of these little battles where might be just oh, for instance this morning I had a student who um, was intubating a patient for surgery um, had a go first go and and was definitely getting a little bit 
stressed and a little bit anxious. Um, and I just slowed everything down and, and re-spoke through it and, and um, had a look at it with her and then she got it the second time. So I think those are the sorts of the battles that I would focus on um, yeah. each day. Um, there's nothing too big like... Yeah, other than that, I don't know. I don't. I, I never feel like I'm def- in a period where I'm going to get defeated. I yeah. just, I'm probably too stubborn. <laughs> just keep pushing forward. I've heard that from another guest who was like, "I, I don't like the word defeat. I don't like that. Just does not register for me." But I agree, it's about those shaking off every day, those little things where something goes wrong, and you're like, "That's okay, because we're going to get it next time." Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, there's always a, a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, and it can be so easy, particularly for students, to be like, I'm never going to learn everything or I'm never going to be able to do this. So I think it is important to take every defeat and just go, no, I will do this. Yeah, definitely. And that, I th- what I've learned over time for teaching is that that first time where it might be putting a catheter in or trying to get blood from an animal, and if they fail in that first, first time, um, you've got to give them a second chance. Um, yeah, and in the hope because if you just take over at that point and yeah. you're like, and then you walk in there, and we've done it a thousand times, so it looks really easy when we take blood yeah. from something. Um, then that probably hurts their self-esteem more than anything. Yeah. If they have a second go, usually they'll they'll do it if you talk through it again, and they'll actually manage to get it. Um, so I think yeah, never be too quick to to slow them down. Because that first initial time, they're pretty anxious. And Mm. uh, if they've never done it before, then they're even more anxious. And there's just like them, they've got three of their colleagues looking over their shoulders watching Mm. them. So, (laughs) so, yeah, no, I think um, always having those little wins and focusing on the wins during the day. It's easy to focus on all the bad things that happen, but you might have had equal number or even more wins during the day as well. Yeah. As long as your patient's got multiple limbs, then you've got other arms and legs to try. So really, (laughs) have another crack. Well, we might stop for a quick break. Are you happy if we come back in a tick? Yeah, no worries. Awesome. Support for Radio Vet Nurse comes from Zilking. It's a supplement for cats and dogs that can help with stressful or unpredictable situations. You know the ones, thunderstorms, travel, multi-cat households, all those triggers. Zilking contains alpha-cazozapine to help keep the animal calm. It's the same molecule that helps keep newborns calm after breastfeeding. It's palatable and easy to give. I mix it into my dog's food. Some behavioural issues are severe and Zilking probably won't help these, but it works well for many pets in stressful situations. Worth a try, right? Welcome back, Gary. What advice would you give to someone about to enter the world of vet nursing? Oh, that's a fun one, isn't it? Um, I think for me, I guess just be ready to learn, um, be enthusiastic about it and and uh, have a notebook yes. <laughs> so you can start taking notes because... Yeah. Yeah, they're gonna. It's gonna be a whirlpool of um, an amazing amount of knowledge and skills that will be all around you. That'll be um, that you'll be trying to absorb over the next couple of years. The notebook is solid advice. We had a new CCR start recently, and he started on the Monday, and I wasn't able to get in at all and see him until the Friday. No, it might have even been the Wednesday or the Thursday. But anyway. 
um, I, I, I think I'd asked one of the, one of the girls, make sure he's got a notebook, you know, he'll need to write stuff down, but that just hadn't happened. It had been a crazy week. And so I said to him like, do you have a notebook yet? And he was like, no. And I just went and grabbed one off the shelf where we've got a ton of them. And I'm like, here you go. Even when they're too busy to be telling you what they're doing, you can take notes. Or when they tell you, this is how we quote this or explain that you can take notes and then you can actually go home and, you know, read it again when you're like, I can't remember a thing that was said to me today. And then the next time I saw him, he's like, I love this notebook. Look at this. So um, the notebook is fantastic advice. Oh, definitely. It's just one of those, even when it comes to like dose rates and things like that, yeah. um, just to be a, you'll get to a point in your career where we, we know the dose ranges for lots of different drugs just off the top of your head. But yeah. at that beginning stages, these these are all the things that will help when you get put in that deep end yeah. and you need to know this stuff. So That's it. And um, what advice would you give to a student vet nurse struggling with their studies? Oh, that's a good question as well. I think it's it's an interesting thing studying because there's so much knowledge that you're never really going to learn at all. Um, and there's a lot of theory. So once again, take notes. Um, depending on how that person learns, I think that's a good way to start mm. is you could identify with that person, how do they best learn? Um, yeah. There are people that will learn things just from writing them down. So if they write something down, they take notes, they'll remember it and learn. Um, other people will only sort of really absorb it when they do it practically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely one that practical. I'm, I'm not a write down of things. So um, depending on what is going to help them most, I think also break it down into into parts you don't if you look at a course um and it might be i don't know surgery nursing or something like that it's actually a really big course but it's also pretty exciting there's lots of parts of that um that i'm sure every vet nurse loves learning about because it's the fun things getting in doing some anesthesia and doing some surgery um and i like to just think of it in a linear way and just break it down into parts so Mm. before we before we even get to the surgery, what are we doing? What's the things that we're going to do? And and, and always ask why. Mm. Um, I think that's an area we probably um, should develop more in our nurses and techs is that uh, we know what, what we're doing a mm. lot of the time, um, but we probably have a little bit of deficits in knowledge about why sometimes. Mm. Um, so get really good at doing it, definitely for these new students. Get really good at, at the how we do it and and then start questioning why mm. um, and ask questions because uh, – and for I guess for the Cert 4 guys, they're often working in clinic while they're learning all this stuff. So mm-hmm. start – when you're doing a course on anesthesia, then bring it in and start seeing how it flows through an actual patient mm. um, and talk about it with your colleagues and the vets. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm sure it gets pretty overwhelming just – studying in general i'm currently um doing an application up for a vts um that needs to be submitted at the end of the year Mm -hmm. and the time it takes is a long time and it's a lot of study and a lot of knowledge that you have to absorb Mm -hmm. and i get home from work and you're like do i really want to do more of this And, and and you do you put it in and you do it and you do it slowly but for me it's just grab a piece off that you can actually chew yeah do it and then do the next part yeah <laughs> do the next it. part and do the next part until you're done oh you just get that analysis paralysis of like this is too much this is too big like but yeah bit that's by it. bit what area would you specialize in for your vts 
Um, looking at doing the exotic companion pets this year. Yeah. Um, and then oh, I don't know. I'm sure someone will be able to convince me. My uh, my criticalist um, at work was wanting me to do the emergency critical care one. So yeah. Um, maybe in the future I'll I'll do another one. Excellent. And focus on emergency. I'd love to do anesthesia as well, um, but we'll we'll see how life goes. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And in all these areas you're working in, are there any bad or old recommendations that you hear that you think should be replaced with more modern or useful information? Oh, I'm sure there's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, in really, uh, vitamin C probably isn't going to fix everything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, people with oh, tick paralyzed animals used to ring and be like, I've given him a vitamin C injection, but he's still not looking good. We're like, yep. He's going to die if you don't bring him in for the, the anti-serum. <laughs> yeah, that's it for the thing that actually works. And then you'll give it the anti-serum and they'll uh, obviously praise the vitamin oh, C. it must have been the, the vitamin C, it. getting that into them nice and early <laughs> for sure. Um, I think yeah, vitamin C is probably really good for me when I don't eat any vegetables for a little while. Uh, the scurvy at bay. <laughs> that's right. But um, for everything else, oh, I think there's, there's probably – so many little myths and uh, one of my biggest pet peeves a while ago was that uh, reptiles don't feel pain Um, so people would do surgeries and stuff on reptiles Mm -hmm. without decent pain relief Um, and Mm -hmm. that goes for a lot of exotics I think not knowing appropriate dose rates for for birds and small mammals and reptiles yeah. means that you may you yeah. may even just ignorantly be under dosing for for different pain relief that sort of stuff I, I know even with um like small animal practices that my husband has worked in like early in in his career um the the, the vets were not giving much pain relief even to dogs <laughs> for like yeah. day surgery and that sort of thing so i think that's come a long way because the the new grads now are fantastic like oh should we put a local in that should we do a nerve block there and they're really proactive with pain relief and we've actually improved a lot of our protocols just in having a new grad but yeah matt when matt thinks back to what he was giving you know spay dogs for example when he first um graduated just just following the protocol of the practices he's like oh god that those poor dogs yeah that's it is it I, it's easy for us now we just go what would you want if you were having that surgery um, yeah and that's where probably where anthropomorphism comes in handy um, yeah because I I've oh, I've broken a lot of bones in my life because I'm a bit crazy, but I yeah. fractured my knee pretty badly, and I went in for orthopedic surgery, and my posterior cruciate ligament evolved, and uh, um, a lot of bad stuff <laughs> happened in there. And the amount of I was on good pain relief before surgery, yeah, um, but even the surgery itself, when it stabilised my fracture, was amazing just to be able to feel how an animal might be getting stifle surgery mm. um, from before it gets stabilized to afterwards and what sort of level of pain relief I was on. Um, so it gives you a bit of insight on what they're probably going through. They just don't really have a good way of telling us about it. Yeah, and we're so lucky that we can talk and say, this is how much pain I'm in. Like, um, Because obviously like it's recognized in human medicine that there's enormous variation because they basically let you choose what you want. Like I've had one surgery twice, which was an umbilical hernia repair. And I had it first done in um, Brisbane in about 2006. And I 
like they, they weren't on top of the pain relief for me and I didn't have enough. And when I went home, I was quite painful and then I was playing catch up and having wind up and all that sort of thing. And it, it wasn't a nice experience. So the second time I had it in 2014, I, this is like shocking, but I told myself like, that is not going to happen again. I'm going to tell them I need more pain relief no matter what. <laughs> and I woke up from surgery and they're like, what's your pain score? And I like, couldn't feel a thing, but I would have been like, oh, three or four. Um, and they gave me more morphine and holy hell, like I couldn't even see like the nurses were coming in (laughs) doing my TPR and going how are you going and at one point I was like I can't see (laughs) and they looked and my eyes were like pinned from from morphine so I was like okay this was a bad idea they actually had your pain relief pretty much nailed but like you can actually just ask for more and be given more so um we're really lucky in that sense so it is important to be able to walk in the shoes of of your patient and think like "Mm, this this dog has always kind of got this goofy expression and is this pain or is this um you know are they nervous or um actually there was a really good um, presentation at the the NCA conference this year, which was, is it pain or is it dysphoria? Is that the other one? Oh, yes. Yep. Yeah. That's right. And uh, <laughs> Matt's pretty heavy handed with his pre-meds, I have to say, and with pain relief. So um, every every single one that was um, dysphoria, I was looking at it going, that looks like a normal recovery. That looks like a pretty good recovery to me. And then by the end, I'm like, I think all of our patients are dysphoric in recovery to some extent. <laughs> That's it. Well, I'd probably rather be dysphoric than in pain, but um, that's it. But yeah, it is a nice balance to try and get right. It is, yes. And in what ways do you look after your mental well-being and prevent compassion fatigue? Oh, I don't know if I'm very good at this at all, really. But um, for me, I think I'm probably pretty resilient, um, and all I have to do is sleep and I feel better the next day. <laughs> um, like we, we all have hard days and, and certainly there's things that stick around in my brain and, and um, hover around. And But oh, I think I am pretty resilient to this sort of thing. I, yeah. I've always been a bit of a robot in how I think about it is, is does it benefit me um, and is it benefiting the situation? And if it's if it's something where I'm dealing with a difficult case or a difficult client or or even just the emotions of of going through a case that may not have gone so well or something like that, um, I can usually distance myself from that a little bit and just think with my brain and go, what's going to be best for the patient? And the yeah. best thing for my patient is to be thinking clearly and, and not emotional about things. Um, yeah. So... I tend to be pretty good like that. I can I can be a bit of a robot, come home, uh, have a sleep and, and sort of move on the next day. Um, I think things help. Uh, there's certainly things we all do that would probably help just chill you out. I'm I'm a big introvert, so usually come home and just have down period. Yeah. Um, pat my dog, go for a walk, go down to my reptile room, uh, go kayaking, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I quite love where it's just quiet, it's just me. I can re-energize, yeah. um, and then oh, we all need we all need to have that that sanity vent every once in a while. So having someone you trust who you can talk to about issues as well, I think, is really important. Yeah, um, and that's I guess our network of support mechanisms outside of work as well. Yeah, um, I think that's like everyone needs to vent every once in a while, mm. and you need someone who recognizes that it is just venting. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can get it off your chest and, and be happy uh, and move on. But also, 
I choose the people I vent to being people that I trust their um, their judgment mm. and and I guess the way they think as well because these people will also stop and say, uh, you're overreacting, mm. this is stupid, um, and they'll pull you up on it. Where I think if you, if you find yourself venting to the wrong person, um, then they sort of just – it almost they encourage it and, and it can turn no longer venting and it can be just you're unhappy mm. um, because – and we all know that unhappiness can be pretty um, oh, sort of viral. It'll spread around yeah. and suddenly everyone's talking about unhappy things. But um, And I don't think that's good for you because – No. You want to – like we spend so much time at work. Like the some of the days, like I know I'm meant to do a seven and a quarter hour day, but that's pretty rare. So yeah. <laughs> you're spending you're spending a lot of time at work and and doing cool stuff. So um, you don't want to be yeah you don't want to be stuck in that and then taking it home with you as well because no, I think that's when you will burn out. It's nice to have someone to vent to that can ultimately like let you vent, but then also help you see any glimmer of humor in the situation or in the <laughs> turn it. of events or in what's happened. And you can all, you know, you can both just end up shaking your heads going, yep, this is the kind of thing that happens to us. We're living the dream and, you know, kind of end on a light note of I got to chat to someone and I talked to someone with a good gauge who would, um, who would go, oh God, of course that would happen to you. Or who would go, is that really okay for that to be happening at work? Like, are you actually okay with that? So, you know, you kind of run through all those motions, but yeah, don't stay in that crisis mode as I've had another guest call it. Um, I think it is, yeah, important to be able to, to draw a line under the sand and go, cool, thanks for letting me get that out and now let's move on. Yeah, yeah. I think if you stay in, if you stay in that sort of feeling for a long time, you'll, you'll burn out no matter what you do in yeah. any way, so... And you're quite involved in our industry as well. Um, I know you're on the VNCA. We're on the VNCA Queensland Divisional Committee together, but are you also on the AVNAT Committee? Yes, yes, I am. What's your experience been like um, on the helping out with the AVNAT launching and everything? Yeah, I think that's really cool. Like I, when um, I got a bit of a call about whether I want to be the vet tech representative for AVNAT and I jumped at that because I thought this is actually – a really cool thing to be happening and yeah. and um and it's a really good step forward for veterinary nurses and techs in Australia. Um obviously we're always sort of a little bit behind UK and and America but um that is the potential to really make the changes that everyone wants and yeah. I am a huge advocate that if you don't like something then be the person who's going to change it. Yeah. And uh, it's like it's definitely a pet peeve of mine that if if you're unhappier with something, then majority of us actually have that power to make that change, and a lot of us just don't. Yeah. Um, and and Avnat was a great um, chance for me to do that, and also be an advocate for vet techs. Um, obviously, vet techs are a, a big passion of mine because I'm one of them, and and I got my set four so I could join the VNCA as well um, before they were accepting vet techs as full members anyway. Yeah. Um, and having oh, that, yeah, it was just exciting for me to to look at. I know it's voluntary registration, but in the future it could become potentially compulsory registration, and yeah. then we've we've got a body that could start, like, yeah, I guess petitioning for good change. Um, yeah. And and that is what you need to sort of make some of the changes in, in I guess, legislation. Um, yeah. Because there's a lot of legislation out there that's very ambiguous, um, but also 
oh, is it really followed? Is it not? I don't know. Um, and I want to make it so that techs and, and nurses can do more um, mm. because it's only going to benefit us greatly because we're going to build better skills. We're going to get more reward from our job. We'll be more efficient in our jobs and then for um, businesses will improve as well. Mm. I think there's like a global agitation at the moment amongst nurses and techs, to, you know, saying let us be able to do more and can we have some clarity on what we can do. So I definitely think it's all a push in the right direction. Oh, definitely. I was I was looking at some of, um, uh, yeah, I think I was looking at some of the Queensland health stuff um, just in like different scheduled drugs and who can handle what and, and what can um, happen. And some of the veterinary nurses, uh, sorry, uh, human nurses have lots of different schedules and lots of different legislation and, yeah. and stuff like that. So I think that's where it would be really cool just to be able to have um, – different levels for people that are, are qualified and keep up to date mm. and they've become skilled in a different area um, and and then they're going from from there and obviously being recognized for it and being able to do more. Exactly. And what's the main area of our industry that you think could do with some attention or improvement? Oh, probably pay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that's probably a big one for lots of people. Yeah. I think I think lately uh, we have seen, we're starting to see a trend to move uh, more towards um, uh, burnout and um, compassion fatigue. And I think that stuff is really important as well. Yeah. Um, I think... I, do, I think that will automatically just grow and people will start to focus on it a lot more. Mm. Um, and I think that's that's an important part because we are we are a little bit we're all a little bit crazy in the fact that we we put a lot of our emotion and our um, physical and mental health into into our patients. Yeah. And I think we we need to be smarter in how we do that. Mm. Um, like it, it's probably not always sustainable how we how we work and how we do things. Mm. And um, and it's easy to be sort of guilted into into what you need to do. So I think I think work needs to go in there. Um, I'm not sure how that will happen. I think it it has to come from us. We all have to make that change, and we have to be ready to um, to have that say and and have that discussion with our employers, but also the public. Um, mm. The public are really good at making us feel bad, yeah. Um, and it's and it's not really because they want to make us feel bad. It's just that they're dealing with their beloved pet, and yeah. suddenly money is an issue which they've never had to do for themselves. Yeah. Um, and. And I think that it will that's it's gotta be sort of an evolution of, of what we do, but also it has to involve the community a little bit. So And grief makes people do some crazy things, like even if their pet is even if they're not grieving because the pet's um died already, but just as you say, because money's an obstacle to getting treatment, like you can just see people doing things that you don't understand and things that are hurtful to you or to your team. And then every now and again I stop and go, Oh, that's right this person's uh, acting out of grief. That's why it makes no sense. And then I at least feel a little bit better because prior to that you're like, why would they say that when we've done this, this and this and they're aware of that and why would they be hurtful like that? Um, and, you know, so we are dealing with people in crazy situations and with social media it's that much easier for people 
to say things that are hurtful or, you know, you, you can live in fear as, as an employee of any business that a client's going to jump on Facebook and say, you know, Nurse Jenny was awful to me. She brought my dog out and she'd made his, you know, poor bleed and she didn't say sorry. Like you can get named and shamed and stuff. So I think that that um, probably, you know, adds to it as well, I guess. Yeah, isn't that a scary thing with social media, mm. how easy it is to to just post anything and anything almost anonymously in, in many cases as well. Um, yep. I think, unfortunately, social media has probably brought out the worst of the human race in, in many ways. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's what people do when they're grieving or or when something just doesn't go quite their way. They can they can make rash decisions and write things like that and or say things like that and um, and it does have a lasting effect. So yeah, I have a love hate relationship with social media. Like you can get those um, absolute units, but you can also have a really good tribe around you. I find he'll step in and be like, Oh, I've only ever had great experiences with them. So um, I think that for that aspect of compassion fatigue and burnout, um, it's just important to have people, I guess, uh, higher up in businesses shielding everybody else from these units and yeah, that's it. yeah and letting people know that's okay we've also got all these other people who really advocate for us so and 99 percent of the time it's just not true yeah like, most of the time it's just they've perceived it wrong yeah and, and, and yes you're right shield your employees from that I'll never forget um, uh, one of the tick cases we had early on and, um, you know, we th- the bill was just going up and up and up because there were ongoing complications associated with um, the deteriorating condition of this patient. And in the end, it was a welfare issue for us to discharge the patient. But, you know, this client was ringing and saying, um, like I don't want to spend any more money. You need to discharge her to me. And and Matt was like, well, we can't we can't now. And you know now she's got pneumonia as well. And then she went on this big rant like via email or something saying I brought her in for a tick and now she's caught pneumonia. Like and we were like, oh man, she just doesn't see that they're linked. Like yeah, she just thought that the pneumonia was like an unfortunate other disease that she caught while with us. So you've yeah, got to remember right. two people are trying to understand really complex things. So. Um, yeah, all just part of the, the fun of what we get to navigate. And if you can reach out and thank a mentor who's helped you in your career and personal development in the veterinary industry, who would it be and what would you say? I would almost dedicate my entire career to a few people yep. in my life that have really pushed me to to do more and, and take on extra opportunities. Um, so like my my initial course coordinator, um, Trish Clark, she was – she basically created the vet tech degree at UQ and um, she certainly saw something in me that that got her to keep pushing me to do more and help out with some teaching and then obviously make that step to move from general practice back out to the university. Um, uh, Trish Farry is another one at UQ. Um, uh, I think actually she's probably been doing many things in my work history in the background uh recommending me for things and and she's one she's an amazing um vet nurse and and specialist tech and she does great things for the vet tech degree and then yeah i know that she's gary might be interested in that and (laughs) um and uh, she knows i i don't say no um (laughs) and uses that uh to her advantage um but I, i think they're the sort of people you need and there's there's countless others um like my first boss in gp um just for for 
developing me as a as a tech as well um and yeah there'd be so many people i guess in my life that um even my lovely wife who puts up with my craziness all the time and <laughs> and uh all the extra work i put in after hours um yeah which I'd probably get sick of but yeah um yeah i think i think you need a couple of those people in your life that will just push you out of your comfort zone a little bit yeah um, there's uh, like getting up and talking in front of someone uh, giving a, a lecture or a presentation is one of the most scary things for me um, and still is. I've been doing it for, geez, how long? And I still get up and I get butterflies in my stomach and I get sweaty palms. Gary, and, you presented and, at VMX. Um, yes, I know. <laughs> that was one of the most anxiety-filled things ever. But um, but I do it because I know it's an amazing opportunity and yeah. uh, I always feel better afterwards. Yeah. Um, I always feel like I've done something Awesome. Yeah. Um, the adrenaline sort of kicks yeah, in. Yeah. And afterwards, yeah. you're like, you're excited. You're in a bit of a buzz. Yeah. Um, you need you need the people who are going to push you to do those things that really push you out of your comfort zone. You need someone just to give you a nudge every once in a while. Obviously, you've had some great people um, behind you so far, and and um, I can't wait to see what they get you to do next. Particularly because they know you just will say yes. Yeah, that's it. Um, And I look forward to it. It'll be funny. Well, it's been really nice catching up with you, Gary. Thanks heaps for your time. Excellent. Thanks, Kat. It was lovely talking. You too. Thanks for listening to Radio Vet Nurse, the podcast. To help us make more free episodes, subscribe and leave a review. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Radio Vet Nurse or drop in at radiovetnurse.com.